Welcome, this is Dirt to Dollars, hosted by your local county extension agents, where we talk everything agriculture. Welcome back to Dirt to Dollars. This week is the week of June the 1st. I've got with me today my co-host, uh, Daniel Carpenter in LaRue County and Matt Adams in Hardin County. We're co-hosts for not, this week. Yep. Thanks <laughs> for not forgetting about us. Yeah. <laughs> and then we've also got uh, Dr. Chris Toich with us here. He is our forage specialist at UK and he resides in the Princeton area at the UK Forage Grain and Center of Excellence. And he is with us today. We're going to talk a little bit about some different types of forages that we can utilize in our rotation and what we can do here to kind of get through that summer slump. So we're glad you could be with us today, Dr. Toich. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So let's just get right into it. We actually were talking before we got started in on the recording about summer annuals. So do you want to just give us a quick, I guess, description of what that is? What is a summer annual when you hear that? So um, su summer annuals are Grasses that tend to have their growth, most of their growth during the summer months, we would plant them after the soil temperature reaches about 60 to 65 degrees Fahrenheit in the spring. And then they'll be productive in June, July, August. And then as we get into late August and early September, their, their productivity kind of trails off. They're annuals because they have to be planted every year or they have to come back from seed every year. They don't perenniate. Um, through rootstock. So are you finding that there are a growing population of farmers that are using these to help kind of use them as a toolbox in their forage production system? Yeah, I think there is an increased use of summer annuals in, um, in forage systems. And my, my opinion of summer annuals and forage systems is that they should supplement a well-managed perennial sod. So, um, things like tall fescue and orchard grass or even Bermuda grass as you move into western and southern part of the state, they should really be the base of the forage system on the farm. And then the summer annuals and winter annuals like annual ryegrass can be used to supplement those sods. And probably one of their best fits is either cleaning up a perennial field that's kind of been thin and you can kind of uh, plant a summer annual in the uh, late spring, early summer, and then come back in and reseed that into a, a perennial stand of grass in the fall. Or another good fit is in hay feeding areas that get drastically disturbed during the winter months. And we've got a lot of those. I was gonna and say, they yeah, have we... really <laughs> been getting some uh, getting some work the last couple of years. Yeah, we've we've got the same issue here, and and I think that. You, obviously, Dr. George, we've had him here several times just in my county talking about the same thing because with pastures not being as great as they probably could have been and with given the weather systems we've had, it's it's been rough on our pastures. So those Yeah, areas. I think the weather is the biggest part of that. It's just yeah. the weather hasn't cooperated uh, either in the fall or spring. It's just kind of been a perfect scenario to make some really nasty feeding areas. A lot, a lot of times people will try to reseed these uh, winter feeding areas into uh, – perennial cool season grasses in late spring or early summer. And that, that usually doesn't work out quite as well as we would, would think it would. Mm -hmm. I think a better option would be to use some of these summer annuals in these winter feeding areas. They get up quickly and, and provide good canopy cover and that shades out a lot of the weeds that germinate in those areas. Yeah, weed control. <laughs> uh, you know, you're more than likely going to be tearing those feeding areas up again in the fall. So it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to go in and, and seed a perennial forage, right? Right. 
right? If if you're going to feed hay back in that area, you're probably better off to, to seed a, a summer annual in a late spring or early summer after you can get things smoothed out and things dry out a little bit in the spring. And then if, if you want to in late late summer, say in uh, August sometime, you can come on and plant some annual ryegrass or a small grain in those areas to give yourself a little bit of winter cover. And just understand it, it's going to be almost impossible to maintain a sod in those areas because of the uh, drastic disturbance from the hay feeding. So what are some of your favorite summer annual species that, that you see that really work well here in Kentucky? So we have our, our more traditional summer annuals. They're things like um, sorghum Sudan grass and Sudan grass and pearl millet. And those are all good choices. Um, probably my favorite would be a sorghum Sudan grass because they're just so vigorous. They come out of the ground so fast and they form a good canopy cover. Um, very rapidly and that's that's really key to excluding a lot of weeds in these drastically disturbed areas. A kind of a non-traditional summer annual that could be used would be um, crabgrass. We commonly think of that as a weed but uh, crabgrass actually has some good forage potential and um, digestibility and you know, performance is, is pretty good on crabgrass. Um, we're actually planning a study uh, Next week here at the research station, we're, we're going to compare average daily gains on crabgrass, a brown midrib pearl millet, and a brown midrib uh, sorghum sudan grass. So we're kind of excited about that study and getting it started. Yeah, when you when you talk about crabgrass, you almost get some funny looks around our parts here. <laughs> we tried to do a crabgrass study uh, probably four years ago now. So, I mean, that was still kind of brand new. And when I went to tell the folks that were doing it, you know, we were doing a crabgrass study. They thought, oh, why are you putting crabgrass? <laughs> and I said, wait a minute. It's a different type of crabgrass. And, and surprisingly enough, from that small demonstration plot that we did, we have had a large group of people actually start to utilize that because they saw the benefits of it, the average daily gain, or they were able to cut it and then use it for haylage or whatever, you know, system that they were in. And then, you know, come back in in, this, in the fall. I, my producer actually drilled in wheat. So he disturbed that soil bed and was able to actually get it to come back the next year too. So you, you've got options. In right. that. That's a good, good point, Whitney, is one of the advantages of crabgrass is that it is, it's truly a summer annual grass. So that means it's got to come back from seed every mm -hmm. year, but it almost behaves as a perennial because it's such a prolific reseeder. Right. It sheds a lot of seed during the growing season. And, um, and you can stimulate a stand of that crabgrass that following year just with a little bit of light tillage to get that seed incorporated into the surface of the soil. Yeah. And now I know I've played around a little bit with some crabgrass on my farm. And I think Daniel has as well. Uh, was telling the story earlier about last year when I was planting mine, I had a neighbor stop in and uh, kind of asked if I was seeding some clover or what was I doing and I, I told him what it was and he just kind of looked at me and said well I don't even have to plant that on my farm it just comes up <laughs> uh, now I, I think people I kind of had to explain to him and people need to understand these are improved varieties of crabgrass yes. it's not just the wild type crabgrass that comes up can you explain a little bit Dr. Toich about what's different about these than the native crabgrass that we have here so so it 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 kind of all started at the Noble Foundation in Oklahoma with a guy named R.L. Dalrymple. And R.L. Um, 
selected a variety of crabgrass for improved growth. It's got higher yields, more upright growth, and larger leaf blades. And that first variety was called Red River crabgrass. That was the first commercially available variety. And for a long time, that was the only variety that you could get. Um, and then over the past decade or so, uh, more varieties have been released, and there's probably about a half a dozen different varieties on the market now that you can get that are improved crabgrasses. And most of them are pretty good. Some, one of my favorites is, is still Red River. I think it's a little bit leafier, um, for, especially for grazing. Uh, we have some called Quick and Big and Quick and Big Spreader, which have a little bit more upright growth. Um, and, uh, and then we have a, a new blend of crabgrass is called Mojo from Berenbrug Seed, and Mojo is a mixture of um, Impact and Red River crabgrass. Impact is the latest release from the Noble Foundation. So there's a number of different options out there. None of them are bad. Um, it's just a little bit of what you might prefer in your particular grazing system. I think we used actually quick and big is the one that we use. So I think we've got between the three of us, there's a variety of different options that, you know, we've tried out. So I think each of us can tell you what's been good about it. I know my producer really enjoyed using the quick and big because it, he was able to cut it cause it did kind of grow upright. So he cut it for, for hay and it, it worked out really well. We had a local farmer and, and actually a listener of ours too, Joe Stoltz, uh, seeded mm -hmm. some crabgrass on his farm last year. And we, we did a few different things where we threw some on the ground and uh, just to see what it would do, just broadcasting it on top of the soil. Didn't do very well. We got very little stand from that, but where we had worked the ground and, and packed it in, it, it did amazing. Um, so don't throw it on the ground and just think that it's going to come up. Yeah. I know that's yeah. my, my thinking was like, well, I mean, that's how it gets in my yard. You yeah. know, the birds <laughs> drop the seed and then it ends up <laughs> taking over my yard. Now that's the only reason my yard is green right now. So one of the interesting things that we noticed last year, Daniel, um, now that you mentioned your yard was we had a defoliation study that we did here at the research station. And in this defoliation study, we either defoliated these plots to one inch weekly or four and a half inches weekly. Um, and where we defoliated one inch weekly in about four to five weeks, those plots became dominated by crabgrass. Huh. So just that shift in management in terms of how close we were defoliating that stand caused that crabgrass to be able to compete with that, uh, with that tall fescue stand. And by the end of the growing season last year, it was mostly, um, mostly crabgrass. Uh, the fescue did come back in the fall, but those stands are much thinner this spring than they were before we started the study. So just one year of that repeated frequent defoliation to one inch really hurt those tall grasses, those mm -hmm. tall cool season grasses in those stands. So let's talk about the seed for a second itself. Uh, crabgrass uh, in a normal circumstance is a really light, small seed. So it makes it a little bit difficult to spread, I guess, if you will, it, without some sort of help. <laughs> so can you, uh, can you kind of give us a little bit of what your experiences have been? I know I've got one of my own, which is kind of interesting, but what's been your, what's kind of the proper experience for protocol for, for planting crabgrass if you were going to do that? You almost have to mix it with some type of a carrier to get it to flow well through either a, a spinner type spreader or a, uh, even a grain drill. Mm -hmm. um, 
generally speaking, we don't like to use grain drills to plant crabgrass with because it puts the seed too deep. You've got to be really shallow with that seed. You don't want to go in past about a quarter of an inch. So Daniel's observation about um, having some tillage is an important one, but you want to have a firm seed bed so the seed doesn't go too deep, and you want it to stay not deeper than about, go not deeper than about a quarter of an inch. Um, in most cases, you can mix it with a, either a fer if you're spreading fertilizer on, you can mix it with your fertilizer. One important thing to remember is that your spreader may throw that fertilizer, say, 30 feet, but your crabgrass is probably only going about 10 feet because of slider. So you have to cut your fertilizer rate by um, make it about a third of what you would normally put out and then drive closer together to make sure you get even coverage of that crabgrass. As far as grain drills, you can run it through a grain drill. If you're gonna use a grain drill to disperse the seed, the best thing to do is mix it with a carrier so it doesn't bridge in the drill, and then just pull your seed tubes off and let that, let that mixture just fall onto the ground and then call to pack it in. Um, if you try to run it through the disc openers, a lot of times you'll put that seed too deep and have a, a failure um, because of seeding depth. And, and seeding debt or seed is not the, the probably the cheapest that you can find around, but because of its prolificacy, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a good option. Uh, what I, what I tell people is don't go to your fertilized store and ask them to mix it in with you because that's what I did and they were not happy about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I believe there's also, if you needed, you could buy coated seed and is there a little yeah. bit of coated seed out there that yeah. might help there, it? There is some coated seed out there, uh, sold by several companies. Um, the one that I have used is called Mojo. It's a, a mixture of Red River and Impact, and it's coated with a nice um, yellow coating on it so you can see the seed. And that coating also makes it flow through the cedars much better. Now, it's important to remember is that you're putting out, you know, it's about 40% coating. Mm -hmm. So you're putting out about half as much seed. So if you're trying to plant a target seeding rate of, say, three to five pounds of crabgrass, you need to double the amount of coated seed you're planting make sure you get enough seed out. And probably a good target range for seeding crabgrass, if it's a new stand, it's probably going to be in that four to six pounds of seed per acre. And as Whitney said, it seems expensive, but but it's important to remember that you're putting out, you're not putting out 25 or 30 pounds right. of seed, you're only putting out four or five pounds of seed. So the seed cost is uh, a little bit less than it seems when you pay sure. or paying for it by the pound. Uh, while we're talking about seeding rates, uh, what about on sorghum sudans or pearl millet? What uh, what kind of seeding rate are we looking at, and what kind of depth are we shooting for on those species? So, so um, pearl millet is is a smaller seed, and it's it's more sensitive to seeding depth. We had a nice demonstration in Muhlenberg County uh, two years ago, and um, I wasn't there. I'm I'm qualifying that I wasn't there when they planted it. My uh, my students were with the extension agent, and they decided that the pearl millet wasn't going deep enough, so they set the drill deeper. So they had one pass that was beautiful when it emerged, and um, in the second and third passes where they set the drill deeper, it didn't come up. So it's it's much more sensitive to seeding depth, and we'd want to be in that half an inch range with pearl millet. In a seeding rate for pearl millet, you know we'd like to see you between 15 and, and 25 pounds per acre is a good seeding rate. Our sorghum sedan grasses, you know, we could uh, be between 25 and, and 35 pounds per acre, and it's less sensitive to seeding depth. We'd 
like you to see it to be about an inch or so with the sorghum Sudan grass. In a Sudan grass would probably be about an inch and we would see it a little bit less there, 15 to, to 25 pounds an acre. And what about fertilization? Of course, we're on our phosphorus and potassium, we're going to follow UK soil test recommendations, but uh, on nitrogen, what do you like to shoot for on those two crops? It, um, generally speaking, I like to put down about 60 to 80 pounds of nitrogen at seeding. And then if you want regrowth after a harvest or after a grazing, you can put on 40 to 60 pounds more nitrogen. Um, you don't want to over fertilizer because you can accumulate nitrates in it. And that's important to realize you accumulate nitrates when plant growth slows. So that happens most often in the summertime during a drought stress. Okay. If that occurs and you have an accumulation of nitrates and your local agents can help you test to make sure that you're in the safe range. Um, you just need to wait until it rains. And then after it rains, you wait about, you know, four or five days after that plant growth resumes in that clears the nitrates out of the plant. They're assimilated into to amino acids and crude protein. So, um, so don't over fertilize, but they do need nitrogen to be productive. And I, I can't stress that enough. Um, now in these hay feeding areas, you know, there's a lot of nutrients already available there. So the nitrogen needs may be less in those areas. Um, if you've got a lot of hay that's deteriorating and a lot of dung and urine that's been deposited during the winter months when they were uh, feeding hay, you may not need any nitrogen on those summer animals in those spots. And what about, I know cutting height, if you're cutting for hay or grazing height, either one is, is important for regrowth on, on those two species. What are we looking at as far as, as harvest height? So, so we usually like to see if you're grazing and shoot for a residual grazing height of around eight to 10 inches with these summer annuals. So essentially you'll be taking about half of what's there. So if we start to graze these taller growing summer annuals, Sudan grass, sorghum Sudan grass and pearl millet in about 20 inches or so. And then we graze it down to about eight to 10 inches. We're taking about half of that grazing height. Um, as far as Hay cutting, it's almost impossible to get to eight to 10 inches when you're cutting hay. So you have to do the best you can. And if you can stay up around five to six inches, we're pretty happy uh, with that defoliation height. It, and that's important. If you scalp these summer annuals with a disc mower down to an inch, you know, regrowth is going to be um, severely retarded as, uh, as you move forward. So try to stay up around um, five to six inches if you can. And there are shoe packages available. I know most people aren't going to buy a shoe package for a disc mower, but they are available. Mm -hmm. And they can, can help you keep off the ground a little bit. But just tipping it up and, and getting the highest height possible is, is good if you can. Do you have any last tips or anything for our producers out there? So I'll, I'll just mention that we've got some really good summer annual publications. And uh, there are uh, about six different publications on different summer annuals. They're one page, very easy to read. And on the back of the publication is a table. And in that table, it tells you everything you need to know about growing that summer annual. Seeding rates, fertilization, how to manage hay and how to manage it under grazing. Those are great publications. They're available online and um, also through your local extension office. Well, we appreciate you chatting with us today and thank you for coming on. And we hope that you are your research projects out there and you are getting some things done just like we are out there. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank Lots you. of great information there. Thanks, Chris. Yep.
staying on the forages topic but switching gears a little bit we have forage specialist dr jimmy henning with us today dr henning thanks for coming on with us thank you matt uh if you could just uh give a little bit of a description about where you're based out of and and what your job responsibilities are and and your position as forage specialist you bet um well i'm based in lexington and I am a forage extension specialist, and of course, there's uh, we've got three in Kentucky: Chris, uh, Torch, Ray Smith, and myself. Ray and I both are in Lexington. So uh, the things that I have been concentrating on have been um, hay and baleage, and to some degree, the gray in all topics. And we we do tend to just uh, take them as they come. Sure. Right. And something to, that's noteworthy as well. You're uh, previous extension uh, or director or yeah. you were our director there at one time and and decided to to come back to uh to the fun stuff for a little while <laughs> exactly yeah it, the it, it was i was I was in the dark side for a, for a long time <laughs> uh but it's a lot it's, you came it's back really, to the light <laughs> i came back to the light that's correct well, I know that the three of us were talking the other day. I think I think you hired all three of us. Yeah. So, so we we're all appreciative of, yeah. of what you did in your <laughs> yeah. time. There. You either did really good or really bad. I don't know. <laughs> those were those were easy calls. I was gonna say we're still here, so I guess that's a that's a testament. <laughs> yes. They haven't let us go yet. All right. So, Doctor Henning, you you said you kind of primarily t- touch on all things general hay and baleage. And I guess let's just go ahead and start with the baleage question, because I feel like that's what I've gotten a lot of questions on recently is when to bale, when to use baleage at what moisture, you know, can you just run us through a little bit of basic general practices when you're going to uh, look into cutting baleage? You bet. Uh, and just as a little background, we've, uh, this is a topic we've been doing in Kentucky mm-hmm. since the mid eighties, if you can believe right. it. Uh, but we have learned a lot in the last two or three years based on some in, a lot of sampling and a lot of farmer conversations I've had. So this is, this is what I would say, that the moisture content tends to be really the driver of how well this thing works. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, followed behind that, uh, the, how much sugar energy is in the forage, how well you wrap it, how tight the bales are. Uh, but most people probably worry about moisture more than anything else. And, and, I, and I agree with that. When we sampled uh, over the last three years, we had uh, more samples outside of the right range than inside the right range, if you can believe that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we, we try to work with people a lot about how to hit that right moisture content. What is that moisture range that most are shooting for? We really want it, I mean, the textbook is going to say 40 to 60 or 40 to 65 percent. Um, and, and that's correct, but we find that it works best if we hit the middle of that range to slightly more, say 50 to 65%. And, and really the, the trick is, is the, to learn what does it look like? What does it feel like when the forage gets to that stage and, mm-hmm. and how fast does it do it? Right. And I know a challenge that I've seen with my farmers and I, I make some baleage on my farm as well is, uh, you know, a lot of times it's not that hay is not going to consistently be the same moisture. You're going to have some damper hay on the bottom and dry hay on the top. And it's trying to, to juggle what mix of that you need to, to hit that range. Right. It, it really is. And, and it's just going to be that way. I mean, 
uh, damper on the bottom, drier on the top, and there are heavier places, lower places mm -hmm. in the field. Um, you know, and, and what I think we've learned over the last few years, especially, is that if we, the, the real problems come when, is when we're too wet. Right. Uh, now, you're going to get a signal about being too wet if your equipment mm -hmm. is really mm -hmm. having a hard time. Uh, but, uh, you know, usually in midsummer where we are kind of right now, the problem is it gets drier faster than we think it will. Mm -hmm. And so we, uh, you know, I, it, I guess people need to understand that it dries from fresh moisture, about 80% uh, moisture down to 60 in a rapid hurry when we've got full sun and little breeze and, right. and you know, 80 or 85. So, uh, usually in midsummer, we're trying to, if you're trying to hit that perfect 50 to 60%, you're trying to, to conserve moisture in the windrow sure. as opposed to making hay where you want to get it out of there. Right. Right. And that can change quick, just mm -hmm. depending on what type of day it is. I know uh, we've been wrapping some hay on our farm over the weekend and, and the first two days, it seems like you could cut it one day, come in and bail the next afternoon, and it was perfect. And then we pulled into some late yesterday afternoon, and it was like, whoa, this is, has gotten dry fast. Yeah, so it, it tends to dry fast. You know, and the, and the good news is that uh, in, in, in years past, we was, I'll back up, in years past, we would worry a lot about that dry stuff because we knew it would not ferment. And, of course, it's the fermentation and the pH drop that makes it stable and, and makes it good feed. Uh, but there's been some really good work up in Wisconsin where they wrapped um, material, you know, in that dry range. And frankly, if you use enough plastic, then you've got a lot of leeway on the dry side. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I tell people not to worry if it gets too dry, that's okay. You know, uh, if, but wrap it, put the plastic on there, keep the plastic intact, and then you're good to go. So it's, it's safe to say to tell people that really, if you had to be one or the other, you'd rather be a little on the drier side than a little on the wetter side, right? Exactly. Uh, and, and I would say that's, that's going to be true all year round with, with baleage. Uh, you know, part of me wants to, it's like, I want to hit that, you know, I want to get it just right. I want to mm -hmm. be 55, 60% moisture, but that is um, hard to do. It's hard to do. It's a moving target. All right. And what, what about wrapping times? How much time do we have after we make that bale until we need to have it in plastic? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, and we would say, and you'll read, that we want to wrap bale no more than you can wrap in one day, same day. Right. But I think we have about 24 hours and, and, and maybe a little longer, but we would say certainly by the next day you want to wrap it. We've, we've had some people who have not been able to wrap for a day or two because of a breakdown. Uh, and, you know, the, the feed was uh, still okay. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, and of course, we're going to recommend in the, in the next breath that you test this for yes. quality and fermentation so that you know, uh, you know, that you've got what you've got and whether it fermented well or if you have a problem. Well, I have one of those uh, accidental uh, research projects, I guess. We, uh, <laughs> yeah. We had a wrapper breakdown a couple nights ago, and so we have some that was, was wrapped right after it was bailed. Then we have some that was wrapped first thing the next morning about 12 hours later and then broke down again and have some that was wrapped about 24 hours later. So we'll we'll watch that for you and, and pull some feed samples and see what the difference is. That That would be good to know. That would be good to know. Well, and it's important to note that the reason why we do baleage is because of that 
quality of feed that it makes versus dry hay. So do you want to kind of explain how that happened or explain that process? Oh, without a doubt. And, and, and it make it the, the ability to make baleage is something that, that I, that really gives me a lot of comfort because before we had baleage was as common, mm-hmm. it would be just so common for people to be frustrated to no end. They can't get the first cutting up. They get the first cutting up so late that there's not much regrowth and we've got poor hay in it. And it just is a, a continuing frustration. So the ability to make baleage will let you, you know, cut reasonably on time. You do, do have to have decent enough weather to be on the field mm-hmm. and have a day or so of drying conditions, but you're able to cut on time and that's, that's better quality feed. That's a great mm-hmm. thing. But an, a little side benefit that's really a significant benefit is that if you cut, say, the first cutting before it gets to be, you know, June 15th, uh, then you're going to get significant regrowth. And it's all for mm-hmm. our cool season grasses. It's all blades. It's all mm-hmm. leaves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a producer ask me the question the other day. He was contemplating purchasing a bale wrapper. And he said, is it worth it to go ahead and purchase it? You know, so you've got those economical questions. And I said, well, I mean, it, it does produce a quality feed and that gives you another option. So, you know, to me, if that's something that you're interested in doing, go, you know, go right ahead. I'm not going to make that decision for you, but it is, you know, he was wondering why it would be better to purchase one than not. So we had a conversation about that and that's why I asked. Oh, it's, it's a, it's a, well, it's a significant conversation. There's not a lot of extra dollars laying around in agriculture right Right. now. The, but you know, if you, you come through a winter, like uh, not last year, but the year before, Mm -hmm. and a lot of folks had hay that was, you know, about like probably average, but the conditions, the winter uh, made cows lose condition. Uh, We lost some cows. We probably didn't breed back as well there's a, there's an economic loss in there that a better feed would prevent. Well, and, and you're talking about purchasing a bale wrapper, but I know, uh, Daniel in your County, is it soil water conservation district? Yes. Our our LaRue County conservation district has two. And, and I think Whitney, you said y'all have one in Grayson. We have one currently. Yes. So there, there are a few out there to rent. Yeah. And and Hardin County, there's several individuals, farmers that went on and purchased wrappers to wrap their own. And then they either do custom wrapping or, uh, or rent those wrappers out. So it could be, it could be a good way to, you know, if you want to try it out and Mm -hmm. and see how you like it, you may not have to make that purchase right away. You could, you could try it out. I know one issue we have is that everybody wants those at the same time. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And, and I've seen, I've had several shared pictures. I think one in this group has even shared pictures of wrapping mm-hmm. at night. Yeah. And when you have that, if you have that availability to wrap in the, in the night or early morning hours, it's a really good way to, to let everybody use that equipment. Yeah. And that was our, that was our struggle is we do currently only have one and we do have a couple of custom operators that utilize them, but you know, that's here, same problem. Everybody needs it at the same time. So uh, we, we've hit on baleage here. Would, would we like to talk about dry hay a little bit? I, I know there's a lot of dry hay that's been made this week. This has been the, one of the best hay making uh, windows that, that I can remember in a long time here in central Kentucky. I was just going to ask you, what are some tips for being able to, to make quality dry hay? What are some things we need to watch for? The, well, you know, the, the number one thing is to try to cut uh, at a stage of maturity that, that does, you know, so that the quality is good when you cut it. Mm-hmm. That's a challenge for us with so much of our 
hay being, uh, you know, tall fescue based or orchard grass based. But yet that's the, I mean, that's, that's the, the first challenge. And of course that probably happens in during some of the, the rainy, uncertain weather times. For us. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't want to, I don't want to frustrate your listeners by saying, oh, well, just cut on time. Uh, that's not a, that's not a trivial <laughs> thing. Um, you know, you cut when it's not going to rain. That's when you cut. Yeah. You know, the really thing to do after that is to to work with what you have. Well, let's let's go back to the to the hay. Uh, you know, it's the leaves we're trying to preserve. And if you've got good clover, good alfalfa, or uh, say your your grass is good and leafy, then you you need to to work out the curing process so that you're not over manipulating it. If you know what I mean, mm-hmm. you can you right. can lose, especially if you get caught having to to flip the windrows or or tear out everything. Uh, if it's a little too dry, you can lose, you know, the best stuff of the hay. So we, you know, that's, that's one of those art uh, things in this, this process, but that's one of the things to look for is try to only manipulate the hay when it's kind of moist and let, let it dry. And, you know, we're just trying to, to have it dry as fast as it can. Most of the time that means lay it out as wide as you can uh, and then, you know, leave it alone, let it get dry. Yeah, we had an instance over because that's where my family's at today is in the hay field as well. And, you know, you get the rain events, you, <laughs> you, you have really good intentions and you're, you're, you know, a half a mile down the road, a rainstorm pops up and you inevitably you've got a little bit of hay down, you know, what is, what are we suggesting to tether it out as much as, you know, as easily as we can and let it dry out that way you know, cause there are those that have happened. And like I said, my family was one of them over the weekend. Oh, without a doubt. And you know, as a, as a plant person, I, I can't just be totally unhappy that it rains. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the, 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 yes, you're going to want to, to, and here's where the art comes in again, you're going to want to go out there and figure out, okay, <clears throat> have I soaked this windrow all the way to the ground? Mm-hmm. You know, if you have, then probably, let it dry out on top and then a tetting operation mm-hmm. is going to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it, if it's just dry, I mean, wet on top, if it's a, a gentle rain, it's not a big shower, then just leave it alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, that it's, it, you'd have to, you can make these calls once you've seen that windrow, seen the field a little easier. Um, you know, one of the, the things that people ask me sometimes when they get caught is, does the hay lose all of its quality if it gets rained on? And it's a good question. The, the, and, it, and it depends, as you might imagine, it depends on how wet it is when it gets rained on. Oddly enough, rain, when the, the hay is just cut or still fairly wet, doesn't have much impact at all. Rain, when it's almost dry, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it helps, I guess, people that, that worry about finding four complete perfect days in a row, <laughs> which almost never happens. No. You know, just... You know, you got to cut it sometime. Uh, you know, if you if it looks like it might rain today, but then after today it may clear up. Well, go ahead and lay some down because mm-hmm. if you, in I'm actually I'm watering my yard right now. You know, it's brand new sod in the spring. Wrong time to do it, but that's a long story. <laughs> yeah. But you know, so I like the rain events. But last Thursday or so, it was supposed to you know 100% chance of rain. I didn't water. <laughs> well, it didn't rain. It didn't rain. <laughs> it did not rain. And it hasn't rained since. Yeah. So, you know, the ability to predict weather is not so good. 
Uh, but you know, the it really is uh, back to to it's it's an art. Uh, but rain does cause some damage, and sometimes you you know it can cause a lot of damage. The the thing that I really think that people don't do when they have a some hay that, that gets a little damaged is they think, well, it's just junk. Well, no, that's not junk. They, they need it. That's the, the stuff they need to test for sure. Yeah. And then you figure out what am I going to do with it? And so I, you know, I, that's the kind of my, my take home message on, on hay that might, you might think it's not as good as it ought to be is get it tested. I ran a hay testing, a mobile testing lab at the mm -hmm. university of Missouri for a long time. Uh, at least a long time, it seemed at the time. Um, <laughs> but I, but I would. We asked farmers, do, you know, do you test hay? And if you don't, why not? Mm -hmm. And they said the the biggest, the, the the greatest, largest group said there is no need. And I thought, no need. But here's the deal. I think that they think that I know it's bad. Why do I pay somebody to find out it's bad? You know. <laughs> The, and, I, and I think that's exactly the wrong approach. And I, so I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that more people are testing hay. I'd encourage you to do so. We, we do want people to, to get a good sample. There's more error in the sample uh, or the sampling process than there is between labs, trust me. Yes. Um, the, the other thing, and it, it may be something that you really have to bear down and help your producers with is, how does that lab predict the energy in the forage? Because mm -hmm. protein is, is straightforward and people kind of understand that. The labs, that's an easy an analysis. But when they are trying to estimate energy, that differs from lab to lab. And, and that's an important um, concept to understand for, for you as advisors, but also for producers. And it's energy that, that really is floating the boat. Absolutely. Especially when it comes down to the winter time and that's what they need. <laughs> yes, it so, is. And, and you would be surprised at how many of my producers, they tested thinking that it was terrible quality hay and it really wasn't as bad as they thought it was. So there is those positive outcomes in testing that. And I'm, you know, like I said, I'm an extension agent at, at heart, but you know, I'm going to tell that person to test it. That's the first thing I'm going to tell them to do. Sure. Nah, that's a good idea. Shoot. It's their report card. You know, yeah. if you're trying to get clover in a field, mm -hmm. well, your hay test is going to tell you if you really did or not. Right. Yeah. So, so real quick, before we have to wrap it up with you, Dr. Henning, I want to tell just a real quick little story. We mentioned that uh, you hired the three of us. Uh, one thing that's always stuck out in my mind since day one, I remember when, when I went to your office for the final sign on the dotted line meeting, I guess, <laughs> uh, we sat down and we were talking about how I farmed. At, at home as well and had a farm at home and and I remember you told me you said you said it's okay as long as uh as long as you kind of practice what you preach and uh, with you being a, a forages got forages guy in your previous life before that as well uh yeah. I remember you told me you said don't don't tell people to go out here and, and plant certified red clover and then go buy a common <laughs> red clover and plant. That, that's just something that's always stuck out in my mind and something I try and try and keep in my mind when I'm making recommendations and doing stuff on my own yeah. farm as well. So, yeah, no, I, I think that's true. And I, and I think that's why people like to talk to people who have done it, mm -hmm. you know, who make hay, who struggle with the same things they're up against. Mm -hmm. uh, the textbook is one thing doing it is another. 
if you all don't have any other questions, we're going to let Dr. Henning get back to his uh, real, real job of helping producers with, with, with cutting hay. So uh, we appreciate you being on with us today and we look forward to working with you in the future. And we are uh, proud that you serve in extension and you help us out a great deal. And we appreciate that. Uh, I'm so glad to, for y'all to be doing this and glad to be a, a little bit of a help today. Thanks, Dr. Henning. Thank you. Thank you. So we were joined by some great guests today, um, really some uh, very knowledgeable specialists on the topics that we talked about and very timely for what we're doing right now. We've got people seeding crabgrass at summer annuals and also making hay. Um, sure by this, by this weekend, it's probably gonna be a little wet and looks like it may get in a wet pattern after that. But, you know, talking about crabgrass and baleage, are mm-hmm. those kind of, are those kind of fads? Only if being productive is a fad. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. You know, you're just talking about fads and, and yeah. how they go in and out with popularity. Yep. Baylage has been around since the mid 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's as have we. In and out, as have we. <laughs> so I don't know. Got me thinking, what are some what are some fads that you all remember? Maybe they don't have to be ag related. Well, uh, and I'll, I'll say this. I think like we were saying earlier, I think fad is probably maybe not the right term. It's just it's something that maybe you're going to use for a while and you may not need it later on and you're going to go back and forth. So yeah, I guess maybe it could technically be a fad, but I don't know, Matt, you got any fads that you remember as a, as a youngling? What were the, the big baggy jeans that Jinkos? Yeah. That was, I never had a pair. Obviously. I <laughs> what was it that MC hammer wore? Oh, parachute pants. Parachute, parachute pants. pants. Those were cool. Yeah. See, I was I, like, I'm pretty sure I was a baby when those were popular. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I didn't have any, but we regularly Wimsies. watch um, the MC Hammer. We have dance parties in my house every now and then. Yeah, we do too. And we watch MC Hammer, can't touch this, and try to do all the dance moves. Um, we purchased a karaoke machine this weekend. Nice. So, yeah. But another another thing, like, so there's these little kids sing along things and they do dances. Mm-hmm. And one of them was the uh, crisscross to make you jump, right? Oh, yeah, and yeah. all these, the kids were wearing everything backwards. And my wife mm-hmm. was like, why are they wearing everything backwards? And I was like, you don't remember that? Uh, yeah, She's that like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, oh, that was the thing. I mean, you yeah. had to have the, the Bugs Bunny Tasmanian devil shirt and they were wearing <laughs> everything backwards. Yeah. And like, that was, that was a big thing for, for a short time. And she had yeah. no recollection of it whatsoever. Yeah. I remember that fad for sure. Yep. I didn't participate per se, but I don't, you know, I remember it. I will say that one thing that I did participate in and it's kind of made its way back into today's fashion culture is the high waisted jeans and the tight bottom, you know, your, their tapered pants and mm-hmm. you've got the acid wash and windsuits. I remember Are having windsuits back. I don't know. Well, I don't cool. know that they're I back. Remember when I would walk <laughs> down the halls as a kid with my they're... starter <laughs> windsuit. It <laughs> 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 couldn't sneak up on anybody. <laughs> and it had to match, right? Oh, yes, for sure. If it to. didn't, and it, the brighter the colors, the better. So, and the, and the more wild the colors, the better. That's that's the way Bring we Bring it back, it. Daniel. You can do well, it. You're I a mean, trendsetter. I am. Jean shorts are still cool, right? I mean, yeah. I've always, <laughs> I, I wear jean shorts all the time. They're very, very I, handy I actually, and they have a lot of pockets. <laughs> I, hey, listen, I had to explain to someone over the weekend what jorts were. And I was like, they're jean shorts. And they're like, what? I said, yeah, they're jorts. Hey, you know what else is in style that never went out? What? Voting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, primary is June 23rd. 
Um, well, I think the deadline to request a mail-in ballot is mid-June, June 15th. June 15th. Mm -hmm. June 15th. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can. And I still think there will be some precincts open in the mm -hmm. counties, but they will not be near as many as they're typically are during a primary. And so if you do have the opportunity to mail in your absentee ballot, uh, you can do that on, if you just Google vote KY, it'll take you to the registration page and you just send it in. And, and I think they'll mail you, don't they mail you information back? I think. I think so. Yeah. All right. What else we got going on? I know last week we talked a whole lot about CFAP. Any any new updates on that? Other than our offices have been crazy busy with calls asking about it. And yeah, and that's fine. If you have yeah. questions, give us a call. We're happy to try to yeah. help answer those and help the uh, Farm Service Agency out with with some of those questions. Uh, we'll it end up ultimately directing you to contact them. But yeah, definitely let us know if you got questions about that process. Mm -hmm. So I'll just say I did go through and get my application put in last week mm -hmm. after we recorded last week's episode with uh, with Brian Lacefield. And as he kind of suggested, I used that online estimator tool. It mm -hmm. was simple. I, I had all my records there in front of me and just went through, plugged the numbers in in 10 or 15 minutes. Then you hit a button on there and it automatically fills your application out for you. Called the girls at the FSA office and asked them what I needed to do with it. They said, just email it over. And within, oh, the next day they added email back to me and said it was in and, and we were good to go. So, And that's at farmers, farmers.gov slash CFAP. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, that is. That's where you'll find all the information you need or just contact either us or your local, local FSA office. All right, Matt, I, you sent us a picture last night. What have you been up to? Uh, we've been in the hayfield the last three or four days and trying to use up some, some vacation time to work here. So It was late in the evening. We're glad you oh, had lights on your tractor. Yeah, I was trying to sleep. <laughs> that, <laughs> last night was an early night. Ding, 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 ding. I was... I was watching the news. I was, I was watching the, the, the latest and greatest on the, on the news. So I was awake, but I quit uh, at 10 30 last night. That was, yeah. I knocked off early. I, I wrapped hay till two o'clock in the morning, the two nights before. So. <laughs> well, and here's the thing we were talking about earlier is that, you know, I went on a wild goose, you know, my family's been cutting hay this weekend too. And I went on a wild goose chase at about six o'clock on Saturday evening, because anytime and a piece of implement breaks down, it is never during working hours. So <laughs> you've got to go find where you're, you know, find and see if you can find it at your retail stores. But most of the time, and in my case, this time they didn't have it. And, we had to wait around to, to get the part when the business is opened on Monday, but it was, how come that is? It's never the same thing that. happened Thursday afternoon. I had two, two bolts on the hay rake break, uh, and they're 10 inch long bolts and just FYI for everybody out there. Uh, <laughs> most of the, the kind of chain stores that are open on Saturday afternoons, mm -hmm. nobody keeps a 10 inch long bolt in stock, but mm -mm. that they, they all carry up to about eight inch. And then after that, you have to go to, special. to somewhere special. Yep. That's the same way we had a yoke that broke on a, on a tether and, of course the piece that we needed they had every other piece in part yeah. but they didn't have the one i needed <laughs> oh adventures of farming <laughs> i got some good quality time with my mother-in-law though we we went on the wild goose chase together so that's always yeah. fun yeah hey listen i love my mother-in-law she's <laughs> like my second mom so i don't have that interesting relationship with her like some other you know in-laws do i can't what's I can't the difference complain. between in-laws and outlaws 
one's in, one's out, I guess. Outlaws are wanted. <laughs> I'm not going to comment because I know my mother-in-law is a listener. <laughs> yeah, mine too. Mine does too. We all love our mother-in-laws. Yeah, yep. I do. I do. So, And I forgot to ask Dr. Henning while he was on here because he sent a picture back early in the spring about fescue heading out. And you all thought I was crazy because I saw some too. <laughs> but it was out there. And so, you know, I was a little concerned about the maturity, but I think everything that we've been running through has been fine. Yeah. Everybody I've talked to the last week or so, we've all talked about how I think the the cool wet weather slowed everything down and Mm -hmm. really stuff's not, your cool season forages aren't as far along right now as they typically would be this time of year. So, so yeah, we're late. We'd usually like to have uh, first cutting grass hay made before the first of June, but, Mm -hmm. but we're really maturity wise probably not as late as we as we have been in in previous years Mm -hmm. well i think that'll just about do it for today's episode uh be sure that if you're listening to this on the podcast format that whatever your your podcast hosting site is that you're getting this from uh be sure you subscribe when you subscribe it will uh, send you a notification when when we post a new episode we usually Mm -hmm. try and post those on wednesday or thursday just depending on on kind of what's going on that week uh but be sure you hit that subscribe button so so you don't miss anything that that we're putting out here and we've always got stuff going on too on twitter at dirt 211 yep all right we'll see you all next week all right see you guys all right see you